Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20 as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel. We're on the 20th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 41 through 44. Again, I encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, I'd love to give one to you at the end of the service. Make sure you can bring a copy home. Uh, The first part of it will be here on the screen, but we always encourage you to bring your Bibles to write in and to take notes and so on and so forth. I think it's just much more precious. Of course, I know there's also those of you who have your tablets, your phones, and you can do it as that way as well. So I encourage you. Let me ask, have you ever went to someone and found yourself at a loss of words when you confronted someone who has more knowledge of a topic than you do? You go to ask them a question and you think you're going to stump them, but they in turn wind up stumping you. And then so you try to hoodwink your way into the conversation or through it. It's kind of what's happening here is people are asking Jesus, Jesus questions, trying to trick him, trying to entrap him, trying to discredit him to see if he truly knows what he, he says he knows. It's the last week of Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry, as he enters Jerusalem and he asserts his authority as Messiah. As you can see, that's been our theme through our music and through our reading this morning. He entered Jerusalem, as you can recall in verse uh, in the previous verses, that he entered Jerusalem to the cheers of his adoring crowds. He cleansed the temple of uh, the corruption that was among among it. And he accepted the worship of children and the crowd that had been following him down from Galilee. And this had created a problem for the Jewish religious and political leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians. Jesus' action through his ministry, the healing of the people, his teaching, his cleaning of the temple, is threatening their power base, and they're afraid of losing influence and control over the people. In retaliation, they challenge Jesus' authority to do such things. And what authority are you doing this? Are you teaching, you're healing, you're cleaning out the temple? Who gave you the authority to do such a thing? as well as his acceptance of receiving the title and authority of the Messiah. Who are you? Why are you proclaiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God? The religious and political leaders resent Jesus not only because he has captured the heart of the people, but also because they failed to use his popularity for their own agenda. And we find people doing the same thing today. They, they, they claim Jesus, they want name of Jesus, but yet they're only using it to propagate their own agenda or to fulfill their own desires. The religious leaders decide to join forces. These are three groups that typically did not do a lot together, but they join forces here because they failed to use it and they want to ask him some questions. They got three questions here designed to entrap and to discredit him. The first question was about his authority. Where do you get the authority? The Herodians then asked a political question we saw several weeks ago. Whose coin or should we pay taxes to Caesar? The Sadducees last week asked a religious question about the resurrection of the dead. 
And each time Luke records that Jesus' answer silences the critics. He is so well-versed. He knows scripture. He's the word of God himself that when they ask the question, he silences them and they have no rebuttal for what he says. In today's passage, Jesus turns the tables, so to speak, as he asks the religious leaders a theological question about the King David, about King David and the Messiah. He's now going to be the one who's going to question them and, and to see how much they know. What is your knowledge base? What is it that you believe? It's time for them to publicly give their reasons for why they reject his message, his ministry, and the man himself. So with that, we're going to read this passage in Luke chapter 20, 41 through 44. It will be here on the monitor for you as well. When Jesus turns them and said, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Father, what a great question. And I pray that as we consider this Old Testament passage and Jesus' use of it in quieting his uh, dejectors and those who want to reject him, Father, that we would understand your word. It's incumbent upon us this morning to answer the question, who is Jesus? What is his authority? Why is he able to do the things that he can do? And what that means for us now, 2,000 years later. So I pray that you join with us this morning. Send your Holy Spirit. Keep us free from, from distractions. Let us be able to stay focused. Let us open up your word. And may we joyfully and gladly receive what it is that you have for us. And Lord, give us uh, discernment between my mere opinions and words and your holy truth. Lord, that you may be glorified for our good. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, reflecting on the purpose of Luke's gospel, why is it that we have Luke's gospel? Why is it that the Holy Spirit has preserved that for thousands of years? It's found in Luke chapter 1. Luke is writing this gospel to, to Theophilus that he may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, he wants his friend Theophilus to understand and have certainty about everything that he had heard about Jesus. Theophilus, as we know, or as we believe, was a Christian. And he's saying, listen, but we're not Jews. We're Gentiles. We never met Jesus. We never saw him. We don't know all he said, but other than what people are telling us. How can we know that Jesus was the Messiah? Luke spent some time in order to answer this question collecting eyewitness accounts of the ministry of Jesus. So what we're seeing as Luke is eyewitness accounts of what Jesus taught, of who he healed, of what he said, and what he, he did. Over the last few years, we have been reading and studying these accounts so that we too may have certainty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. However, as we come to the last few days of Jesus' time on earth before his death and resurrection... The religious leaders have concluded that Jesus is not the Messiah. Or should I say, I think that they believe that he was someone from God, but they rejected his claim to be the Messiah. So the question is, why? Why are they doing that? 
The religious leaders had been questioning Jesus' authority, and he had answered their questions so wisely, as Landon said, and so well that no one dared or durst to ask him any more questions. Thomas Schreiner notes that Jesus has shown that he is wiser than the religious leaders. And their attempt to trap him has failed. He is wiser than Solomon and a greater king than Solomon or even David. This latter truth will be clear in the ensuing discussion. The scribes acknowledge Jesus' wisdom and his ability to answer questions. They understand that there is something special about him. Indeed, the depth of his answers actually intimidate them to where they will not ask him anymore. They fear asking him a question because they're going to be more humiliated publicly by being bested in a discussion by whom they consider an uneducated man from Nazareth. He was not a rabbi. He did not attend any great rabbi school, great teaching school. He did not have a four-year degree. He did not go into higher education. And so for them, they thought it was going to be a cakewalk. Let's ask him some deep questions, see how he's going to answer in each and every time He just shut them up and publicly humiliated them. So now Jesus, as we come to this passage, is going to turn on the offensive. So far, he's been on the defensive, answering their questions, allowing himself to be tested. Now he's going to go on the offensive and test them. He's got his own questions as he's teaching in the temple. And knowing that his ministry at the end and that the cross is near... Jesus is using this time wisely by teaching his disciples and the crowd that's around him in the temple. He now turns to the scribes that are lingering around the edges of the the crowd uh, uh, looking for a way to accuse him. He turns to them and he asks them this theological question. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? It's just a simple question. You might ask, how is Lily the daughter of, 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 of Landon? Or how is Brandon the son of Rob and, and Landon the son of, of, of Brandon? I can't get the names right. <laughs> so let's take a moment to review the word Christ. What does Christ mean? Uh, contrary to most public opinion, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not like he was born from uh, Joseph and Mary Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It's a title that actually comes from the Greek. It is used for the Hebrew word Messiah. So when we sing Jesus, Messiah, Messiah was a Hebrew word of which we translate Messiah. Uh, Christ was a translation of that Hebrew word. Messiah was known as the anointed one who will come as a conquering king who would rule in majesty over all of his enemies. The passage in question is Psalms 110 that we read just a little bit earlier, where he says, set at my right feet until, or my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the Bible and was considered a messianic psalm that prophesies a coming glorious, victorious king. And in a nutshell, the psalm prophesies that one day the Messiah who sets at the right hand of God that we just spoke of in our Apostles' Creed will rule in the midst of God's enemies. That God's people will offer themselves freely to him and that he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath and execute judgment among the nations. 
Jesus is pointing out that the scribes taught that the Messiah is now the scribes. That's a word we don't usually use, but those were the teachers of the law. They taught that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be a king in the line of David. You know, King David, he killed Goliath. He became king of Israel, who would then liberate his people, the Jews. Now, remember, the Jews have been under the thumb of four foreign empires for five, six, seven hundred years, I think, up until this point. I don't remember how many hundred years, but it's been at least 400 plus years. They taught that the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Christ, though he would just be a normal human being, they believed that he was just going to be flesh and blood, just a, a normal human being, a descendant of David. The people believed that the Messiah would be just like a man like Moses and Joshua and David, men who delivered them from their enemies in the past. So they looked for heroes of people that they, would, that they had considered heroes in the past. You and I would do the same thing as, oh, don't we might say, oh, I wish we had a man like Abraham Lincoln today or George Washington or we need, we, need a, we need a general like uh, Douglas MacArthur or something of that effect. That's what they were looking for. However, Jesus now is correcting the error in their teaching and their beliefs. He does this by asking if David himself calls Lord, the Messiah Lord, then how is he his son? The theological issue is how can the son be superior to the father. So in their minds, in their ancient minds, King David would be great. And anyone who came after David would be lesser. But in this case, the scripture says that the son would rise higher than the father. Now to us, we can consider that happens many, many times. I want my son to be better than I am. We want our grandsons and so on and so forth. But in this case, they, how is that re a reality? Is the Messiah the son of David or is he the Lord of David? How can he be both? Now, the ESV study Bible writes that the title, the son of David, reflects the common understanding that the Messiah would be a human royal descent of David. The son of David, a term that we see very often in the Gospels, is a common title for the expected Messiah. And as you can tell, there were many people who would call Jesus son of David. Yet David calls the Messiah his Lord, his superior, the one who would rule over him. Jesus is making three points here. One, the Messiah is more than just David's son. He is David's son, but he's more. The Messiah is actually more highly exalted. He will have a higher position. He'll be more exalted than even King David. And the third point is the Messiah is actually the son of God. Yes, the son of David, the son of man, but also the son of God. Though junior in age, if we're speaking human chronologically, the Messiah will actually be superior in rank. The Messiah is to be understood as David's Lord rather than just as his son. Now, remember, Psalms 110 is written by the Holy Spirit through King David. So King David is the one who's actually writing this through the Spirit. And it's written about the Messiah so they could understand that when he came, who he was to be. And it affirms the deity. It's saying that he is greater than David. Now, the crowds love seeing the religious leaders being duped and silenced. 
In Matthew's account of this change, it said that no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him more questions. That was it. This is the last question they're going to ask him. From now on, they are going to just seek to arrest him and kill him. The problem is is that the religious leaders truly do not know who Jesus is and where he comes from. They do not understand that he is from God and that he is God. They were ignorant of his identity and the source of his power to do miracles and the authority of his messages. Remember, they proclaimed that the only way that he, the only way that he could heal people was because of Satan himself. Jesus shut him up at that time as well. Sadly, the one that they had been praying to come was right in front of them. The one they anticipated, the one they had prayed for, the one they had desired, the ruler, the king, the son of David, the Messiah, was right there in front of them. And all they could think of was ways in which they could silence him completely. It's all that was in their mind. Their very dreams, their very aspirations was right there. Listening to him, watching him, hearing him teach. They desired to silence him at all costs. Now, the promise of the Messiah is given many times in the Old Testament. The scribes were looking, but were so lacking in understanding, they were blind to the truth of his identity. John MacArthur writes, you'll see it here in the monitor, that Jesus' question exposed the Jewish leaders' uh, ineptness as teachers and their ignorance of what the Old Testament taught regarding the true nature of the Messiah. In the end, when Jesus is asking, who is Messiah? They just don't know. They have been misapplying it. They had misteaching uh, mis, uh, all these hundreds of years. But as we see in the Old Testament, the son of David many times is found there. In Psalms, we said David himself says, speaking of Yahweh, God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. In Isaiah, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, speaking of one who would come from the descendant of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this son of David, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this is going to be a special man. And Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming where I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice. So this is the righteous one that they were looking for. The one who would repair their broken kingdom. The one who would restore it to its former glory. Luke has recorded at least three times that others have proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, the promised one. And Luke wrote wrote that Jesus inherits the throne of his father, David. In Luke 1, 69, uh, 69, Jesus is declared as the horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. And in Luke 18, the blind man rightfully confessed that Jesus was the son of David. So Luke is writing to give us certainty that that which was written in the Old Testament is true of Jesus then and there. He's wanting his readers to understand that. And hence, it has been preserved for you and I 2,000 years later 
that we can open the book and see that the Messiah, the anointed one, had come. You see, the real issue is not about taxes, that they were asking, should we pay taxes? It's not even about the resurrection. Do, does something happen to us after we die? Or the priorities of the law of Moses, but the identity of the Messiah that they were looking for. That's the real issue that's happening here. They believed that a Messiah would come, but they were ignorant of who he truly is. In this passage, Jesus emphasized that the son of David is not just a special descendant of David, like some superhuman, but the son of God himself. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1. The point is that Messiah is the son of David, but he's also much more than that. He is also David's Lord, who will sit at the right hand of God, sharing the same stature and identity as God. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that the Trinity consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That each person is fully God, and that there is only one God. In John chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So now we're going to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God said, word, let there be. It was Jesus who was this active agent in making let it be, be. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. But then go to verse 14. And, his, and the word became flesh. This is now when we know he's speaking of Jesus. And the word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. So who is Jesus? Who is this one that is entering Jerusalem and receiving and accepting the worship and adoration of the masses? Who is this Jesus who comes and curses the fig tree and goes and cleanses the temple from all the crooked dealings that are going there? Who is the Jesus who, who says, I have the authority to teach and correct what your scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees have been teaching? Who is this Jesus who has been healing and declaring those that believe in him guiltless? Well, he's the son of God. He's also comes from the human line of the son of David. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. He is both fully God and fully man. And that's what you have to understand about Jesus. Jesus is more than just a good moral teacher. He's more than just a special guru. He is more than just a self-motivator. Jesus is fully, truly God and fully truly man now at this moment if this is the first time you've heard that your mind is going boom okay I'm checking out right here because it seems such a strange teaching but you and I need to understand the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man has something very important for you today because depending on what you believe, whether you accept that truth or not, has eternal consequences. 
It's important for Luke to make clear this point clear to his Gentile Christian readers in the first century. Remember, this was especially important for those in the first century because they lived in a world in which they were required to worship a man. In those days, Caesar, you worshiped Caesar. You had to say that Caesar was God and to not do so would cause your own death. And really what Luke is saying is here you are signing your own death warrant when you proclaim that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. The church was facing persecution during this time because they worshiped a different God man, not Caesar, but Jesus. Now, these two beliefs were in direct conflict. So it's important for us to understand that. And to be honest, though we do not have Caesar as in Augustus and Julius and so on and so forth, you and I are still struggling in the spirit of the age of a different type of Caesar, a different type of God, a different type of savior, a different type of king that we desire to rule over us. Now, it could be your own appetites, your own desire for pleasure experiments. It could be your family, your investments, your desire for just yourself. It could be the government. They're the ones who give us all things. And we are living in a world today in which Caesar is trying to take more and more of that which belongs to God. We need to understand that. And so it's important for us to understand who is it? If you and I are called here, he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. He says, come together each week, right? Why do we? Is it just because Jesus has some good things to say that'll help my marriage? That'll help me be a better employee or employer? Is Jesus something that I just add to my life and mix and it makes me kind of better? I want to have better Fridays or I want every day to be like Friday. Jesus is so much more than just something you add to your life. Jesus is something who comes in and transforms your life. William Burkett in his commentary, you'll see it here on the monitor, about the incarnation. That incarnation is Jesus becomes flesh. And usually we talk about incarnation during Christmas. But here we are after Easter and way before Christmas. But we need to understand the importance of the incarnation. William Burkett says this, that though Christ was truly and really man, yet uh, he was more than just a mere man. He was Lord unto and the salvation of his own forefathers. In other words, Jesus is actually the savior of his father. David, of his other father, Solomon, of even of Abraham, the patriarch, of Noah, of Adam, if we were to go back. Jesus is the savior of not only those who come after him, but also it is in him that the others find their faith realized. That's how Jesus is Lord. He goes on to write that the only way to reconcile the scriptures which speak concerning Christ is to believe and acknowledge him to be both God and man in one person. The Messiah's man was to come forth out of David's loins, speaking as his ancestor, but as, or de descended, but also as God's man was actually David's Lord, his sovereign and savior. As a man, he was David's son. As God man, he was Lord of his own father. So get this. 
You know, as, as my children and grandchildren come to me, there's a sense in which we are, uh, they are subservient to me, in which they show me respect is a better word, is respect. Just as, as if my dad, who is still alive, I would show him respect and so on and so forth. It would be odd for me if my son to come in, if I was to bow down and bow down to him. But here's the thing. David, Solomon, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, who walked with God and was not because God took him, never died, bow down at the name of Jesus. This is who he is. So what I'd like to share with you is what does that mean? What does that look like? Why is it that Jesus became fully? How can he be fully God and fully man? And so to hopefully make it a little bit easier, I put it on the monitor. This comes from Wayne Grumman, his systematic theology. When we think of the divine nature, divine nature to the human nature, he says, although Jesus' human nature did not change his essential character because he was united with the divine nature in the one person, Jesus' human nature gained a worthiness to be worshipped. Remember, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ. You might recall that in the Gospels, even the demons would scream and bow down before Christ, saying, we know who you are, son of David, son of God. So in that, Christ is worthy to be worshipped in the flesh, but also his inability to sin, both of which did not belong to the human beings otherwise. In other words, we all sin. We all have sinned. We all come short of the glory of God. We all have inherited that guilt. But Jesus was perfect in all ways. So that's how the human nature helped with the divine nature. Now, from the human nature to divine, as we go to the next slide, we see that Jesus' human nature, because he had a, a human nature, he had an a, ability to experience suffering and death. Jesus knew what, it like, knew what it was like to have his feet tired after a long day of walking. Jesus knew what it was to walk in human flesh. He got tired. He needs he need sleep. He had to eat. He had to drink. He had to do all those things. He understood what death was. What do we see? That he, he wept at the death of Lazarus. He looked at the city and had compassion. He wept. But he also sees, see that he, he understands our experience. We have a high priest who sympathizes with what we go through. But he also had an ability to be our substitute sacrifice, which Jesus as God alone could not have done. The Bible tells us because of our sin that there is a penalty, and that each one of us will have to face that penalty. That penalty is death because of our sin. And because he was flesh, he was able to die. But as the son of God, he was able to rise again. In his book, Chosen by God, R.C. Sproul writes at the end of this long discussion, speaking of the discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders, it may be easy for us to lose sight what is taught in scripture. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, speaking of the incarnation. It's far more amazing, he says, than the resurrection. And it's even more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and then join himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man, man, he says, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. 
So what's amazing is not that God could do that, but to me, it's the fact that the Son of God would do that. This is a terrible, terrible analogy. So just take it for what it's worth and just lose it. Imagine if you had a line of ants just running around. And every day you watch that someone comes and just without looking just smashes and walks on those ants. Maybe not even aware of it. Unless they're eight years old then they're aware of it and they're doing it on purpose. And you imagine all of a sudden your heart goes, oh those poor ants. Someone needs to tell them, quick go in this way. And all of a sudden someone says, I tell you what, why don't you become an ant? And live that life. And go down there and communicate with them so you can help them to stop and show them a different way, a better way, so they can be saved. You say, okay, I can do that? Oh, yeah, I got the power to do that. But would you do that? Probably not. I know it's a silly analogy. But that's not too far. Who is man that you are mindful of him? But God in his love looked down for God so loved the world. And see, you and I are like those ants. We're just scurrying about our life, going through and not even realizing that we're being stepped on by sin and by Satan. And at the end of our life, it is death. And I'm not talking about annihilation where where we're nothing. We're talking about eternal conscience, punishment in hell. And hell is not a place where some people will think, well, that's where all my friends are going to be and I'm just going to enjoy life. No, hell is a place where you will feel the torment of God forever. And some may say, well, God is just, uh, you know, God's not there. Separation from God. There is no separation from God. Let's get this. Hell is the eternal presence of God there, but not his kindness, no compassion, but just his justice and pure wrath poured on us for eternity. There is no end. There's no escape. There's no reprieve. But Jesus said, Philippians, I will become man. I will live the life of a human and I will give myself for them. This is what the incarnation is. And you and I think, wow, that is wonderful. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders and many others are rejecting this truth. Just as some of our family and friends and people that we love are rejecting it. We must be careful that we do not fall into the same trap as the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were looking and praying for a military leader, a national hero to right the wrongs that they have suffered for hundreds of years. What they needed was a savior to save them from their sins not a military leader, not someone who could lead them to a conquest. Today, we are also being told that we need a national leader, one to bring us from the brink of destruction. However, what you and I need is a savior, the one who is able and willing to bear our sins, the punishment that rightly belongs to us, but then also to give us his righteousness because in his human or is in his divine nature he never sinned and you and I are only saved not because of our own righteousness but for Christ it's applied to us it's imputed unto us 
So the question is, what does this mean for us today? That's great for Theophilus. That's great for Luke, written 2,000 years ago. It's kind of interesting. Jesus shuts them up. We wish we had that type of wisdom to shut some people up. But what does that mean for us, the incarnation? Well, the Holy Spirit, number one, the Holy Spirit reveals this truth to the children of God. Why couldn't the Pharisees understand it? Because the Holy Spirit did not give it to them. Jesus confirms that David wrote the Psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit continues to declare the glory of Christ. Look here in John 16 on the monitor. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. Some of you this morning need to send out a prayer. His Spirit, speak to me. If you're struggling understanding this concept of the fact that Jesus is the Christ, then your prayer should be, Spirit, help me to understand. If you're here and you do understand, you must come and submit yourself to the Christ. The Bible tells us in Psalms is to kiss the son, lest he be angry. But if you're here this morning and you have accepted, you are a child of God, you willingly submit, then continue to do so each and every moment of your life. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And when we're saying, speaking of speaking Lord, yes, someone can say those words, but not in their saving faith. And so you and I, we need to recognize that we need something outside of ourselves to speak the truth to us that we may understand who Jesus Christ is. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot know Christ. This is why the religious leaders did not recognize their own Messiah. So what is it that you and I should do? I'm going to give you three things real quickly. Is number one, you and I need to embrace this truth that leads to life. 1 John 5, 1, believe it might be here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the dead. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And let me ask you this morning, do you want to live? Do you want your spouse to live forever? Do you want your children? Then this is the gospel that we must embrace, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man able to save us from our sin when we submit and repent of our sin and put our trust in him. For this is the only truth that leads to life. Secondly, we need to recognize that denying this truth is to be condemned. If you deny that Jesus is fully God, that Jesus is fully man, that he is the Christ, it says that you then will be condemned. Looking at 1 John chapter 4, I believe it's up there. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. We went camping this week and I got a, 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 a ding from the, our ring from our camera. And then I see there's two ladies there knocking on the door waiting for someone to answer. I could tell right away where they were from and who they were. And sure enough, when I get home, I find in my door the Jehovah Witness track. 
What is it about the Jehovah Witnesses? Keep this up here just for a moment, Ben. Is that they deny that Jesus came in the flesh and is God. They deny the incarnation. Jesus is just a son of God. He's not the same or is God. It's a false religion. It's a cult. Heretics. That may be strong, but let me ask, let me share with you what the Holy Spirit says. In 1 John, it says, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Let me share with you, there is a lot of false information, false religions that are out there. Can they make you a better person? Yeah, I think so. There are many religions and other types of things that can make you good, productive citizens. Yet it has no saving faith in it. You cannot deny Jesus Christ and have eternal life. And then lastly, if Jesus is God, then he is due worship, glory, honor, obedience, and commitment. Let me say that once again. Again. If Jesus is fully God, fully man, if he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, then he is due worship. He is due glory and honor and obedience and commitment. In Matthew 22, verse 37, do we have that on there? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength? Have you committed to him? Are you worshiping, which the Bible says is our reasonable service? That's what God has called us to do. This confession that Jesus is the Christ is the key to the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching. We've been studying for years now. Entrance of the kingdom of heaven only comes if you have the key that Jesus is the Christ. Only those who confess their sins, repent, meaning turn away from their old way of living and turn to Christ will enter eternal life. If you're still wrestling with who Jesus is, then I beg you to consider the evidence and testimony of the scriptures and pray for understanding. Many times I understand that these are difficult concepts to grasp. Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom so that you too may see the glory of Christ, the truth of Jesus as the word, the Messiah. If you have family and friends that have not yet embraced Jesus, then pray that the Father, that to pray to the Father that He might send the Holy Spirit to blow into their hearts by opening their blind eyes to see who Jesus truly is. If you're here this morning, you are a child of God, then commit yourself to submitting to the Word of God by offering Him true worship, which He not only demands, commands us as well to do the same thing. But here this morning, who do you say is Jesus Christ? Is he just a man? 
To the Jews, he's a failed man. He's a failed Messiah, died on a cross. To them, they believe they silenced and shut him up. But you and I know that he sits at the right hand of the Father, ready to judge the living and the dead, but will one day come for those that are his. Amen? May all of you join us in the kingdom, for Jesus is Lord. With every head bowed and every eye closed real quickly, ask the worship team and Randy to come on up. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider the words of Luke. The question of Jesus, who is the Christ? I do not want anyone here to be misinformed or to be mistaught of who Jesus is. We must come to understand that he is fully God and fully man. And from that, he is able to save us from our sin. And you are, I are called to submit. And then consider what it is that the Holy Spirit's calling you to do this morning. For some, you may need to submit to him for the very first time. If so, Randy, Landon, and I would love to share with you how you can know that, know that you can have eternal life. We would like to offer you the keys to the kingdom. Maybe here you're just struggling. You're just not sure. You said a prayer. You might have believed at one time, but you're struggling today. We'd love to share with you from the, from the gospel, from God's word, how you can know for sure that you are saved. If you're here as a Christian, you feel like life is going well, then I want to share with you and show the importance of that in your life. Sharing that truth is the most important thing that you and I can do. It's the greatest heritage we can give to our children. It's the greatest gift that you can give to your spouse. May we do so for the glory of God and for our good. Randy, would you come close us We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.